That's what it feels like, right? That everyone is living in a bad, bad dream. Well, I, today I thought that we could get a little bit of truth and transparency going and uh, kind of gloat a little bit because we got ahead of the curve for a second too. So where do I start? There's so much I want to talk about, but I want to talk about someone that used to be uh, someone that I looked up to and someone, uh, you know, when I was younger that I aspired to be as smart as. Um, but what I didn't realize is that there's a difference between, uh, being knowledgeable and being sneaky, right? And, uh, uh when you're younger, you, and, and you're naive because you don't have experience, you tend to confuse the two. And I did notice that continuing on as, uh, someone, uh, naive, uh, assisted me in the long run. Um, therefore my questions or, um, uh, the things uh, that I I wanted to pay attention to and the skills that I wanted to learn were very easy. So um, obviously, uh, let's start with some fun news. Um, rare earth magnetic supply chain. <laughs> Listen to this. From Jim Latinsky, a CEO of MP Materials. And uh, Jim, uh, let's start with a question. 
What will the Defense Department's $35 million investment allow you to do in your process? Well, thank you, Mr. President. It's an honor to be here today. Uh, this DOD investment delivers on your call to action of a year ago to re restore America's supply chains. Uh, so your investment will complement more than $700 million that MP will invest by 2024 to create an American rare earth magnetics supply chain. As you said, these magnets are essential to our economy and the clean energy transition. So my team is committed to bringing this supply chain home, and we are doing so with an operation that is a benchmark for innovation and environmental sustainability. You know, we proudly operate in the state of California under the very high standards that should make all Americans proud. You know, we founded this company five years ago. Uh, at the time, Mountain Pass was in care maintenance with only eight employees. Many actually doubted that it could ever be restored, but we got to work and built a great company poised to become an American champion. So I hope that our story is a symbol of what is possible. One thing I've learned, Mr. President, is that American manufacturing spirit is second to none when we all work together. But the truth is, multi-billion dollar supply chains do not move overnight. It's gonna require capital. It's gonna require perseverance. It's gonna require strong coordination between the upstream and the downstream. And most importantly, it's gonna require a true commitment from leadership across the board. And sir, convening this group today sends a powerful signal that is a catalyzing effect. So I, I wanna thank you and your team. Uh, thank you to the DOD. Uh, thank you to Governor Newsom and everyone assembled here today. I also wanna recognize the 400 American heroes at MP who report to work every day with an unwavering commitment to see this mission through. Thank you. Jim, do me a favor for listeners to tell me a little bit about the process that you undertake to allow us to compete with China, for example, and other countries in terms of providing access to this rare material. Yeah, he doesn't even know what to say. But remember, we did a whole show on it. And I told you how important it is for the future. Because in the future, we use it. In the future, we use it to camouflage. In the future, we use it to transmit energy. In the future, we use it as a combiner to create super batteries and super magnets and damned damned. So I thought for those of you that um, heard that show last year, I think it was February, right? Um, and you guys had capital, uh, you know, are going to um, gain on that. Now, uh, I also wanted to talk about some more fun stuff like Pluto. I, I said yesterday, I just wanted to show you some oddities in regards to that planet slash not a planet is a planet again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just all so confusing. So I'm like kind of thinking, let's see. Um, so let's go to 2018 first. Okay. We got to go to 2018 because it's fun. Cause this is how you see things that, um, make no sense. Um, this is uh, from 2018 that talks about uh, Pluto revealed in high definition. Now, 
I'm going to have to be skipping forward on it only because there's um, stuff we don't need to hear. But look at the dates, right? Okay. So let's go. The revelations about New Horizons' visit to Pluto last week made headline news. Scientists have tonight been celebrating the arrival of detailed images of Pluto. Here at the sky at night, we've been lucky enough to be behind the scenes, following the unfolding story every step of the way. We've recorded data of the Pluto system, and we're outbound for Pluto. Revealing the in-depth science behind the incredible images of Pluto and the surprising discoveries of mountains and strange geometry on the surface of this cold and distant world. It's a fittingly stunning mission for our 750th episode. This is Mission Control at the Johns Hopkins University. For the past week, the world has been amazed by fabulous images of Pluto being back from across the solar system. It has been an astonishing week. When we got here, some people feared that Pluto would turn out to be a frozen and dead world. But we've watched as it turned into anything but. Until recently, Pluto was just an indistinct speck of light at the far edge of the solar system. As recently as April this year, this was our best image of Pluto and its moon Charon. But now, New Horizons has changed all of that. This week's findings have transformed our understanding of the solar system, throwing up into the air our ideas of what causes changes to planetary surfaces. How can such a tiny world have such incredibly varied terrain of mountains and plains? What are the different patches of colour across its surface? And do we need to rethink its relationship with its huge moon, Sharon? We'll also be showing you how to find Pluto in the night sky for yourself. Examining why some no longer consider it a planet, and looking at where New Horizon it offered a perfect test for her spacecraft. Jupiter was extremely important for the mission. All of our instruments are brand new to space. Um, and so we were using Jupiter as really an opportunity to test out these instruments for really the first time in observing a real object. While it was passing, the spacecraft trained its cameras on the moon Io. We were at the right place at the right time. Um, we've, we got a notice from the Hubble Space Telescope that they had detected something going on. This snapshot is from the color imager Ralph. It's undeniably beautiful, but it's the black and white lorry camera that captured the real detail. The camera caught a huge eruption, 200 miles high, coming from the volcano Tavashta. To see those images come back, all that hard work, all those long nights, come back with the spectacular images, it was, it was great. Eight years ago, the spacecraft left the Jupiter system behind, crossing the orbits of Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. It was now hurtling through the void towards Pluto, an object that's always been a bit of a mystery to us. Before New Horizons came along, we had to figure out everything about Pluto from a distance of three billion miles. And this is the best image that we had. And trying to find detail here is like trying to make out the writing on this coin from 13 miles away. This blurry, grainy image is what Pluto looks like to the Hubble Space Telescope. And we've had to put up with it. Despite the likes of the Voyager probes touring the solar system, Pluto, 
has just never been in the right place for them to visit. Before its encounter with the dwarf planet, I caught up with Alan Stern, the principal investigator for the New Horizons mission. For him, the flyby is the culmination of decades of work. This mission is running the anchor leg in a 50-year sequence of missions in which the United States has explored the entire solar system from the closest planets, Venus and Mars, all the way out now to the farthest frontier. So seen from here, from Earth, Pluto's just a speck. But what do we know about it already? With Earth-based techniques and the Hubble Space Telescope, we've been able to learn a bit. So we know it's a fascinating world. It's a planet with five satellites. It has an atmosphere. It has seasons. We've discovered a polar cap. There are big surface markings. Scientists were able to combine multiple Hubble observations to produce our first maps of Pluto. They revealed a world with dark and with light patches, a first hint of the surprises that awaited on Pluto's surface. We also suspected that the surface would be unlike anything we'd seen before, with temperatures as low as minus 233 degrees Celsius. We know that the surface is primarily made of nitrogen ice, snows of nitrogen. Uh, we don't know how deep they are, but we also know that there's carbon monoxide snow, that there's methane snow, and there may be vast expanses of water ice as well. But nobody knew how those strange snows and ices are distributed across the surface. What structures or surface features might they form? And what, if anything, could be going on inside this icy world? So if you could discover anything, if you could order anything from Pluto, what would you choose? I would order something wonderful, something that we don't expect. You know, that's been the history of planetary exploration. The first mission to Mars found craters and then they found river valleys and no one expected either. And always being asked about Pluto, why was it reclassified? And if it's not a planet anymore, then what on earth can it be? Right from its discovery, Pluto seemed different from the other planets. Here at the Royal Observatory, we have records going back for hundreds of years, and somewhere we should have a record of the discovery of Pluto. 1917, that's too early. 1987, much too late. Clyde Tombaugh had been set the specific task of finding a planet. So when he saw his moving point of light in 1930, what else was he going to think he'd found? Here we have the President, Council and Fellows of the Royal Astronomical Society sending the Lowell Observatory their heartiest congratulations on the great discovery of the trans-Neptunian planet. But trouble was brewing from the word go. Within weeks, Pluto's status was being called into question. Its eccentric orbit and small mass set it apart from the other planets. I just wanted to state for those of you listening that this trans-Neptunian planet <laughs> was actually called Planet X. So I just wanted to mention that because you can't read uh, what the documents they were showing from the 30s, which would mean it would be a while after it supposedly came here and to be visible. So I just wanted to point that out. More importantly, some scientists argued that Pluto might not be alone. Over the decades, our ideas about the formation of the solar system developed. It was suggested that the edge of the dust and gas cloud from which our planets formed would have been too spread out to condense into planets. 
Instead, it could be something very different. Scientists reasoned that there could be hundreds of thousands of icy objects on the edge of the solar system that had failed to be incorporated into one of the major planets. They called this region the Kuiper Belt, and Pluto's status as a planet started to be called into question. On the 5th of January 2005 came the fatal blow. Scientists in California discovered another small moving point of light. This was Eris, a world they believed was bigger than Pluto. This was huge news. The likelihood was there could be many more large objects out there. Scientists were faced with a choice. Either open the doors to potentially hundreds of new planets, or Pluto was for the chop. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union put it to the vote, and it wasn't good news for Pluto. The IAU decided that a planet had to be an object in orbit around the Sun that was massive enough for gravity to squeeze it into a spherical shape but also it had to be gravitationally dominant, and that meant it must have cleared its surrounding region of other similarly-sized objects. But with everything else out there in the Kuiper Belt, this was Pluto's downfall. So where did this leave Pluto? The IAU decided to classify it as a dwarf planet. To many, this was seen as a demotion, but I'm not so sure. As a planet, it was the last gasp on the edge of the solar system, but now it's an exciting example of a brand new class of objects. Whatever we learn from it will change the way we think about our corner of the galaxy. Back in Maryland, the wait for the first data was nearly over, and we were finally going to see the first high-resolution images of Pluto's surface. It's three o'clock now on Wednesday, and we're just going to start the press briefing. Here they're going to get, show us the first close-up images. I'm really interested in the moons, uh, what detail we've got on those. The moons, I'm sure they're interesting, but Pluto is going to be incredible. We're going to get our first very close-up images. And I think they're targeted on the edge of the heart, one of the most interesting regions we saw yesterday. <laughs> well, I had a pretty good day yesterday. How about you? <laughs> right, John Spencer's going to tell us about the first, just the first frame of that mosaic that's already down on the ground, and which has already uh, given us a big surprise. John? Thank you, Alan. So we're, we're zooming in on this area. Here's the image, here it comes. <laughs> it's driven by heat created by the decay of radioactive elements in the planet's core. But most of the other icy and rocky worlds in our solar system are so small they were presumed to have exhausted their supply of radioactive elements long ago. Even the once active Mars is now dead and cold. There are moons of Jupiter, Saturn and Neptune whose surfaces show signs of current activity. The fresh icy surface of Europa and Triton or the stunning ice fountains of Enceladus. It has always been thought that these processes are powered by heat generated by the constant gravitational squeezing and stretching caused by their giant host planets. But that can't be the case for Pluto. So if it's hot on the inside, where is the heat coming from? I went to find John Spencer to see if he had any ideas. 
rock contains radioactive elements, and the Earth being large and mostly rock contains a lot of those elements, and that's what powers most of the geology of, of the Earth, um, is the heat from that radioactive decay. Oh. Because these objects are so much smaller and they're only about half rock and not completely rock, that's a much smaller amount of heat, but it might still be enough to, to process the surfaces. But it's not just Pluto that's causing us to rethink some of our ideas about the solar system. We have a rather glorious image <laughs> of Sharon. Yes. And I mean, this is spectacular. <laughs> yeah, this was a big surprise when this image came down. Uh, we see a belt of fractures running across the disk of Sharon. Then on the edge of the disk, we can actually look right down the length of a canyon. Oh, yes, uh, we yes. Can, so we can, measure it, we can measure its height just because we can see sky through the other <laughs> side of it, which is... Uh, pretty amazing. And this is mm, deeper than the Grand Canyon. This wow. is a, would be a spectacular thing to stand on the edge of. Like Pluto, large parts of Sharon are remarkably crater-free. It all suggests some unknown geological process. We see a world with craters, but there is a lot of space between those craters. So oh. something is covering up craters. Oh, I see. So it's mm. been bombarded, but then the surface has been right. removed. And we have no idea what that process is yet. But Pluto and Sharon share more than geological activity. Sharon's dark stain, Mordor, backs up John's ideas that they're sharing an atmosphere and both creating those dark red tholins. Pluto and Sharon are close enough together that they really can have an effect on each other. As gas is escaping from Pluto, as it's doing all the time, some of that will get temporarily caught uh, into a Sharon sphere of influence, but if it gets bombarded and converted into uh, other hydrocarbons that are kind of sticky and don't evaporate oh, off, yes. they will stick to the surface. Lovely, and, and build up over the years. Right, and e each season you might only get a few molecules, but over billions of years, yes. you could actually build up enough to discolour the surface. Together, the shared geological activity and atmosphere lend weight to the idea that Sharon is so closely entwined with Pluto that it's far more than just a moon. It's an idea I've been investigating. It's an issue of mass. Or I should be more precise and say relative mass. Sharon is huge compared with Pluto. It has one-eighth of the mass of a dwarf planet. And that's so huge that it stretches our definition of a moon. Can a moon have 50% of the mass of its host? 90%? Just how big can a moon be? For comparison, we can look at the moon with a second largest relative size. And it's a bit closer to home. Our moon is 1.2% the mass of the Earth. That might not sound like much. It's only one-tenth of Sharon's relative mass. But it's the biggest ratio of all the other major planets. It's certainly big enough for its gravity to have a real impact down here. And the tides are just the most visible consequence. There's a less obvious effect of our large natural satellite. And it perhaps is more surprising. You don't necessarily need a NASA mission to see Pluto for yourself. With today's amateur equipment, it's easy to discover the wonders of the solar system and out into the galaxy beyond. You can even detect and photograph faint, magical Pluto in the same way that Clyde Tombaugh did 85 years ago. Pete has the details. It's probably fair to say that Pluto isn't the easiest target to find in the sky. As well as being relatively faint, you probably need a 10 or 12 inch telescope to actually see it at all. It's currently in the constellation of Sagittarius. And that means to locate it, you need to point your telescope right into the heart of the Milky Way galaxy. 
But while Pluto's a challenge to pick out against the thousands of background stars, it's also a great opportunity to see some of the other wonders that lie nearby. Now this magical part of the Milky Way is quite low down and close to the horizon, so it pays to have a good friend like Ian who's got a field with a good low southern aspect. And as we're doing this in the middle of summer, then the sky doesn't really get dark until about midnight. Now we've got some clouds up there at the moment, but what do you reckon Ian, do you think the clouds are going to clear by midnight? Well I'm still hopeful Pete, uh, it did clear earlier and I think it will again. I admire your optimism. <laughs> Ian's faith is rewarded and it's not long before stars begin to appear. Now we can begin our search for Pluto. The key is to look for the teapot. This isn't actually a constellation, it's what's called an asterism, an unofficial pattern of stars useful for navigating the night sky. The centre of the Milky Way galaxy lies just to the right of the spout of the teapot. And if you can imagine where the steam would be rising out of the spout, then here there are some really beautiful deep sky objects. So before we go off hunting for Pluto, let's have a look at some of these. Due north of the teapot, to the west of a constellation called Scutum, you'll find M16 and M17. M16 is the Eagle Nebula. This was the subject for Hubble's famous Pillars of Creation image. And M17 is the Swan Nebula. This is one of the brightest star-forming regions in the galaxy. But there are plenty of other objects to look at too. Come and have a look at this. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so that's, that's M8 and M20. Indeed, in the same shot. Ian's captured the Lagoon Nebula and the Trifid Nebula. No mean feat given how south these objects are. That's something you don't see very often from the UK, isn't it? Yeah, I just get that down. Uh... Pluto may be closer, but because it's much fainter, it's trickier to find. Northeast, or above and left of the teapot, is a spoon-shaped asterism, predictably called the teaspoon. Pluto is currently very close to the edge of the teaspoon's bowl, furthest from the handle. Full details can be found on the Sky at Night website. Now we know Pluto's there, but unless we had a big telescope and really detailed charts, it's a difficult thing to pick out visually. So we're going to try and track it down taking photographs. Now I've got a fairly inexpensive DSLR camera here, and it's set up with my favourite wide-field telescope, which has got an aperture of 130mm and is f3.3. But you don't need to use a telescope, you can use a normal camera lens. Anything like a 200mm or longer focal length should be ideal for the task. The idea is to take several photographs of the same patch of sky with a period of time between each one. Now, if you've got a big telescope with a close-up view, then just a few hours between shots should be enough. But if you've got a wide field set up, then you need at least a day between your shots to show any movement. Once you've got all your shots, you can load them into a computer. There are plenty of software options to help you align the stars. The aim is to create a video sequence of your images. So what you're looking for is a point of light which moves between each frame. Now here I've got three images which I took over the course of 11 days. And if you look really closely, you can just about make out the progress of a faint speck of light. in the same way that you can make out dinosaurs in clouds. Now, I want us to move on to 2020, but before we do, see, I don't catch these things, and you know, I'm really bad about stuff like this. I'll forget. <laughs> so someone in the UK just turned 50.
So I just thought I'd play that uh, down the range, just turned 50. And I thought I could play that <laughs> funny song because um, I caught it. You know, a lot of people have birthdays and I, you know, miss it. This year, I might even forget mine. That's how busy I am. No joke. Now, let's get back to Pluto. Now, January, uh, January 2020. Okay, a year ago. <laughs> Just so that you realize, okay, so that was 2018. It's not a planet, okay? But if you look real hard, you can see it. And now, <laughs> now we go to two years later, and here's what they tell you. Now listen up. My very, very eager mother just served us nine pizzas. Ooh, yum. Hey, if you were in elementary school before 2006, there's a good chance you had to memorize something similar to that sentence. This mnemonic device was used to teach children the order of the planets in our solar system. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, also pronounced Uranus, yeah, you can't hide from it either way, and finally, Neptune and Pluto. Now, if you're currently in elementary school, you might be saying, wait, there were nine planets? Before going back to playing Fortnite Go or whatever kids are into these days. So what happened to Pluto? It's not like it's gone anywhere. It's still out there on the edge of the solar system, as cold and far away as ever. So what changed? Well, Pluto hasn't, but our understanding of it has. We know way more about space than we did 100 years ago. Pluto itself was only discovered in 1930, so it's not like the planet lineup hasn't been modified before. Still, that doesn't change the fact that there's something inherently strange about a planet being demoted. Who even knew that was a thing that could happen? Hey, what do you think? Should Pluto be a planet, or is it right where it belongs? Give me your opinion in the comments. Things might get a little clearer once we figure out what the word planet means. The exact definition has changed a lot over time. But from the age of Galileo to the 19th century, it referred to any object orbiting the Sun. This might seem a little vague, but worked perfectly well until the year 1801. That was the year astronomers discovered Ceres, a planet in massive air quotes, orbiting the Sun halfway between Mars and Jupiter. You might recognize this as where the asteroid belt is. And it isn't because Ceres pulled an Alderaan and broke into a thousand pieces. If it had, I'm pretty sure kids would pay a lot more attention in science class. Anyway, astronomers noticed right away that Ceres was quite small, with only half the radius of Earth's moon. The year after Ceres' discovery, the astronomy community was abuzz with the discovery of another planet named Pallas. Then they found another a few years later, and another, and another, and I think you see where this was going. Four new planets are one thing. Well, four things, but you get the idea. When it turns into thousands, it might be time to reevaluate some definitions. Astronomers noticed that the rocks had more in common with each other than any of the other planets. They were tiny, they were barren, and the vast majority weren't even spherical. 
These small objects became known as the asteroids in the asteroid belt. And the world went back to learning the seven planets. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. Uranus. Whatever. Neptune made eight in 1846, with Pluto joining the party 84 years later. With the benefit of hindsight, it might be easy to guess that Pluto would go down the same path as its long-lost cousin Ceres. But we all know what they say about hindsight, and there are things we know about Pluto now that weren't obvious in the early 20th century. For example, while we know Pluto is nothing more than a tiny ball of ice and rock, initial measurements gave it a similar size to Uranus, or Uranus, and Neptune. Pluto's size was revised down to that of the Earth a year after its discovery. In 1948, it shrank again. It would keep shrinking until astronomers were finally able to get an accurate measurement in 2006. We now know that Pluto is only 1 459th the size of planet Earth, making it smaller than the Moon and only about twice the size of the former planet Ceres. Pluto's planet status was in trouble long before that, however. In 1978, astronomers discovered Pluto's moon, Charon. At first, this might seem to be strong evidence in Pluto's favor. If it's big enough to have a satellite, it must be a planet, right? Well, not exactly. Charon may be smaller than Pluto, but not that much smaller. One half the diameter might seem like a big difference, but not compared to the differences in size between the other planets and their moons. In fact, they're similar enough in mass for Charon to noticeably affect Pluto's orbit around the Sun, causing it to wobble to and fro as it travels through space. That's some very unplanet-like behavior, and it led more than a few astronomers to feel uncomfortable about using that word to describe Pluto. And they got even less comfortable every time a new Pluto-like object was discovered beyond Neptune's orbit. Still, Pluto had been on the list for decades at this point, so not everyone was ready or willing to give it the boot. All that changed with the discovery of Eris in 2005. While Eris is slightly smaller than Pluto, initial measurements placed it as somewhat more massive. This added one more strike against Pluto's status as a planet. And in 2006, the International Astronomical Union decided it was once again time to revise their definition of what is or is not a planet. From then on, an object was only a planet if it fit the following three qualifications. First, it must orbit around the Sun. Number two is that the object must be a sphere, or at least nearly so. Pluto checks the first two boxes, but runs into trouble with number three, which says a planet must have cleared the neighborhood around it. Clearing its neighborhood means that there are no nearby objects other than its own satellites. Pluto has failed to accomplish that feat, so the third box remains unchecked. One strike might be okay in baseball, but it's a deal-breaker if you're trying to stay on the exclusive list for Club Planet. Now, not everyone was thrilled to find out Pluto got kicked out. It's not hard to feel bad for the little guy. And even today, there are a few scientists who disagree with the IAU's ruling and want to call Pluto a planet once more. They propose that the first and third qualifier be removed. Under this definition, any object with enough mass to maintain a spherical or nearly spherical shape would qualify as a planet. While this would let Pluto back in, it would also let in our moon, as well as several of the moons of Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune. That's not to mention Ceres, Charon, and a whole bunch of asteroids and other objects. All combined, 
this new definition would take us from a manageable 8 planets to an unwieldy 115. Now, the current definition is far from perfect. As some astronomers have pointed out, it excludes rogue planets not orbiting any star. Some feel it also puts too much emphasis on what surrounds the perspective planet instead of the worlds themselves. To quote Ethan Siegel from Medium.com, Mercury, at the distance of Jupiter, would never clear its orbit and wouldn't obtain planetary status. A world much smaller than Mercury could be a planet around a red dwarf star, while even Earth would fail to be a planet if it were out in the Oort cloud somewhere. On the other hand, what do you do about stars such as Proxima Centauri, a red dwarf star that orbits the larger and brighter Alpha Centauri A and B? Is this a planet? It fulfills all the requirements, even though it's unquestionably a star. Can you be a star and a planet at the same time? Conventional wisdom says no, but this is the problem you run into when trying to define words like planet. All of this might indicate that it may be about time to take another look at how we define planets. That said, increasing the number by a factor of 14 doesn't sound like a great solution. Whatever definition science eventually settles on, sadly, Pluto probably won't be on it. Well, that statement didn't last too long. Let's go to 2021 now. <laughs> it's just so... It's like, are you kidding? Hold on, where is it? There we go. Let me get this uh, clip ready. So that was a little cartoon showing you how Pluto became a planet again in 2021. And the media made a nice big fuss about it coming back to America on the same cusp as July 4th, 1776. Yet, wait a minute, I thought it didn't have an orbit. Wait a minute, I thought it wasn't a planet. It just sounds so dumb. So that's all I wanted to say in regards to science and what they tell us. <coughs> I'm just saying. And how 
it magically has the orbit of planet X, you know, where it's vertical and horizontal. And they called it planet X, but now it's called, you know, Pluto. And then it's not a planet. Eris is a planet. But then it's got a moon that's got Sharon. So it might be a planet again. I mean, that's just science. So science, science, <laughs> fuck science, science. So let's uh, let's talk. Well, you know what? Let's shift gears. Let's talk about Hillary. But to do that, I want to share with you one of um, something that you should listen to carefully and with great um, attention. It's quite important that you listen to this and then we'll talk. So I first stood at this podium in this majestic chamber to speak on behalf of the American people and to address their concerns, their hopes and their dreams. That night, our new administration had already taken very swift action. A new tide of optimism was already sweeping across our land. Each day since, we have gone forward with a clear vision and a righteous mission to make America great again for all Americans. Over the last year, we have made incredible progress and achieved extraordinary success. We have faced challenges we expected and others we could never have imagined. We have shared in the heights of victory and the pains of hardship. We have endured floods and fires and storms. But through it all, we have seen the beauty of America's soul and the steel in America's spine. Each test has forged new American heroes to remind us who we are and show us what we can be. We saw the volunteers of the Cajun Navy racing to the rescue with their fishing boats to save people in the aftermath of a totally devastating hurricane. We saw strangers shielding strangers from a hail of gunfire on the Las Vegas Strip. In the aftermath of that terrible shooting, we came together, not as Republicans or Democrats, but as representatives of the people. But it is not enough to come together only in times of tragedy. Tonight, I call upon all of us to set aside our differences, to seek out common ground and to summon the unity we need to deliver for the people. This is really the key. These are the people we were elected to serve. Over the last year, the world has seen what we always knew, that no people on earth are so fearless or daring or determined as Americans. If there is a mountain, we climb it. If there's a frontier, we cross it. If there's a challenge, we tame it. If there's an opportunity, we seize it. So let's begin tonight by recognizing that the state of our union is strong because our people are strong. 
There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. So to every citizen watching at home tonight, no matter where you've been or where you've come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, and you can dream anything, you can be anything, and together we can achieve absolutely anything. All of us together as one team, one people, and one American family can do anything. We all share the same home, the same heart, the same destiny, and the same great American flag. Together, we are rediscovering the American way. In America, we know that faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, are the center of American life. The motto is, in God we trust. And we celebrate our police, our military, and our amazing veterans as heroes who deserve our total and unwavering support. Reminds us of why we salute our flag, why we put our hands on our hearts for the Pledge of Allegiance, and why we proudly stand for the national anthem. Americans love their country, and they deserve a government that shows them the same love and loyalty in return. We want every American to know the dignity of a hard day's work. We want every child to be safe in their home at night. And we want every citizen to be proud of this land that we all love so much. We can lift our citizens from welfare to work, from dependence to independence, and from poverty to prosperity. As President of the United States, my highest loyalty my greatest compassion, my constant concern is for America's children, America's struggling workers, and America's forgotten communities. I want our youth to grow up, to achieve great things. I want our poor to have their chance to rise. So tonight, I am extending an open hand to work with members of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to protect our citizens of every background, color, religion, and creed. My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream. Because Americans are dreamers too. It was a small cluster of colonies caught between a great ocean and a vast wilderness. It was home to an incredible people with a revolutionary idea that they could rule themselves, that they could chart their own destiny, and that together they could light up the entire world. That is what our country has always been about. That is what Americans have always stood for, always strived for, and always done. We're a people whose heroes live not only in the past, 
but all around us, defending hope, pride, and defending the American way. They work in every trade. They sacrifice to raise a family. They care for our children at home. They defend our flag abroad. And they are strong moms and brave kids. They are firefighters and police officers and border agents, medics and Marines. But above all else, they are Americans. And this capital, this city, this nation, belongs entirely to them. Americans fill the world with art and music. They push the bounds of science and discovery. And they forever remind us of what we should never, ever forget. The people dreamed this country. The people built this country. And it's the people who are making America great again. As long as we are proud of who we are and what we are fighting for, there is nothing we cannot achieve. As long as we have confidence in our values, faith in our citizens, and trust in God, we will never fail. Our families will thrive. Our people will prosper, and our nation will forever be safe and strong and proud and mighty and free. Thank you, and God bless America. Good night. This man inspires us every single day with his words. He says the things you want to hear. And that's because he channels good and love and affection, not just for his nation, but for the people of his nation. This is why he was so loved and he is so loved. Now we did do a show on um, Moses. And there were some videos that I played that intertwined that of um, Abraham. See, a God always has the right people around you when you need them. Because, you know, when you envision who and what your God stands for, one of the most endearing parts of it is his ability to have faith in you to do the best. Forsaking you is not how it works. Abandoning you is not how it works. I think it was in Hebrews where it says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I don't think that there's any day that has gone by that your creator has not been by your side. I don't think that there has been any day that he has actually let you fall. All of your life, his love has been true to you. And all your life, as long as you have faith and live up to the expectations 
that he holds for you. You feel that back. And so the people, as we see for a little over a year, have lost hope. Evil has taken hold of many. And those that have evil have become good. And those that were good, corrupted as they are, it was only superficial. And therefore, we know that God meets all our needs according to his glory. And if, you know, if you listen carefully to the words, he always says, my people listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I think it was Matthew or was it John that wrote that? Salvation doesn't begin with your own merit. And it will not end that way either. He's in charge. When you're afraid, he never leaves you alone. When you feel alone, he'll never leave you or forsake you. Now, one thing that we've noticed lately, and I know it's very subtle, is that the phrase of uh, Galat- it's Galatians, Gal- Galatiani, whatever, Galatians 3.17 and Exodus 1240. Since we talked about Exodus, let's talk about it. Exodus 12.40 records the uh, children of Israel before the Exodus spanned a period of 430 years. Now, many times I have said 430 years, one year may have been a day. One year may have been a decade. One year may have been an hour. You do not know. But one thing that God likes to do is create the impossible. And many of you, just a couple weeks ago, because you didn't know, but yesterday it began. There was a reminder of that hope, that thing that symbolized your hope. Reminding you that we never left. That hope has never left. That those that are fighting for the people have never left. And those of us, like myself, that are sinners are oh so joyous. 430 years could be 430 days to let you know. Could have happened 430 days ago from, wait a minute. What day was that? Was that a Monday? I'm trying to remember. No, it was a Wednesday. Wednesday uh, the 9th. Wednesday the 9th. Hope never leaves. And you are never forsaken. And as a reminder, many of us, uh, you know, sang this and danced to it, but I found something 
that'll let me play it. Um, where is it? Do you guys remember the movie Ready Player One? Okay, we're going to try this. Let's see. I like it. Uh, that's one of my favorite films. Here we go. In the name of James Halliday himself. First to the key! So yeah, from that, take away 430 days and let hope reign and let hope sing. You know, because nobody did take it. Nobody, well, some did, but those that stood did not. And those that did, did. But did we fight? Yes, we did. We did fight. We totally did fight. And here is where I'm going to show you how fights happen. I think it's important that... We begin tonight with that breaking news. Um, from 2017. Let's talk about this. Let's break this down. Because it's all going to be coming and I want to just put it into focus for you. President Trump's striking allegations against, against former, former President, President Barack Obama. President Trump in a Twitter tirade accusing the former president of spying on him at Trump Tower by wiretapping phones, but offering no evidence or even what prompted those allegations. allegations. A spokesman for President Obama firing back saying neither the former president nor the Obama White House ordered or interfered with any such surveillance. This following reports of a dramatic and heated exchange, you see it there, inside the Oval Office with key Trump advisors, which led to some key aides not accompanying the president on Air Force One as he took off for Florida. ABC's chief investigative correspondent, Brian Ross, leading this off tonight. It was just before sunrise in Palm Beach when the president of the United States took to Twitter to make one of his most stunning accusations ever. Terrible. Just found out that Obama had my wires tapped in Trump Tower just before the victory. Nothing found. Followed by four more presidential outbursts taking on President Obama and misspelling tap. How low has President Obama gone to tap my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon, Watergate, bad or sick guy. Today, a senator from the president's own party, along with U.S. intelligence officials, called it a troubling development. I'm very worried. I'm very worried that our president is suggesting that the former president has done something illegal. It would be a crime to reveal such a secret FBI wiretap on Trump Tower. And no U.S. official contacted by ABC News would confirm the allegation. It's an extremely serious offense. Anyone who would reveal the existence of a wiretap uh, would violate federal law. Because the president cited no proof, it is not clear tonight whether he based his allegations on a top-secret White House briefing or whether it came from reading an article on the conservative Breitbart website posted Friday that detailed speculation from a conspiracy-loving talk show host, Mark Levin. How many of Trump's people were eavesdropped on how many had their conversations intercepted, recorded, transcribed? Because this, ladies and gentlemen, is the big scandal. A spokesperson for President Obama quickly called the allegations false. And one of Obama's former national security aides, Ben Rhodes, responded to Trump. No president can order a wiretap. Those restrictions were put in place to protect citizens from people like you. Peace, Lord, 
The president's Twitter rage today did serve to keep the focus on Russia and contacts between the Russian ambassador and at least five top Trump aides. And it comes a day after a Democratic member of the Senate Intelligence Committee told NBC News that key wiretaps are, in fact, part of the investigation, although he said he has not read them. There are transcripts that uh, provide very helpful, very critical insights uh, into whether or not Russian intelligence and senior Russian political leaders, including Vladimir Putin, um, were cooperating, were colluding uh, with the Trump campaign at the highest levels to influence the outcome of our election. And Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross joins us now live in studio. Brian, from what we know, there is a kernel of truth to what the president was saying, but he may have also raised some serious legal issues. Well, that's right, Brian. We do know the FBI is investigating whether there was any possible collusion between Russian spies and the Trump campaign. And in cases like that, wiretaps can be used. But if anyone other than the president reveals the existence of a wiretap, that break the law. But legal experts tell us, Tom, the president does have the power to declassify anything he wants. A story still developing. All right, Brian, thanks so much. And who says that wasn't declassified but not shared? Hmm? Who says? Who says that wasn't declassified, just not shared? See, that's the interesting part, right? That was from 2017. 2017. Now, everyone's talking about Hillary Clinton. Everyone's saying, oh, well, kind of, yeah, we should. But let's see what Clinton has to say, along with this guy, who, unfortunately, I, when I listen to him, all I think about is Mark Dice. Right-wing media spin machine went into overdrive because of this legal filing, this vague legal filing by special counsel John Durham. This legal filing pointed to internet traffic that may have been linked uh, in some ways to the Clinton campaign, and it became this alleged scandal all across Fox and Breitbart and the right-wing web, all these shouts that Trump, Donald Trump, was spied on by the Clinton campaign. Those shouts were not based in reality, and by the end of the week, they really fell apart under fact-checking and even under Durham's own cleanup effort. But during that week on Fox, this was covered I don't want to just say extensively, it was covered ferociously. We added up the mentions of Durham throughout the week. We came up with more than 600 mentions of Durham and of this so-called scandal. All of it really focusing, targeting on Hillary Clinton, that candidate, that former candidate, the Fox just can't quit. So with that in mind, I got an email overnight that I want to share with you. This is from, uh, this is an email exchange between a Fox producer, actually a Fox editor, and Philippe Reigns, a longtime Clinton confidant. So let me show you this because it gives you a sense of what Clinton world is thinking about Fox. And maybe you'll agree, maybe you'll disagree. This email is a request for comment, a pretty standard request for comment from a Fox digital editor saying, hey, we'd like to request a short interview with you, talking about your reaction to the recent headlines regarding the alleged surveillance of Trump's team. So again, rooted on a lie, but they're asking for an interview. So it's good they asked for an interview. Here was the response from Philippe Reigns. He said, I don't do TV anymore. But he said what the right is doing right now with its insanely overwrought and hysterical reaction to the most recent Durham filing will be a case study and yet another plunge deeper into the abyss. Fox and others like it pretend that it's providing information nobody else is covering. The audience is made to feel they're in on a secret that only they are over-informed and the rest of us live in a bubble devoid of inconvenient truths. Philippe went on to say, you know that's BS. 
The distinction in coverage is in two interrelated ways, truthfulness and volume. Those covering it truthfully have looked at it factually and given it the appropriate time. Those treating their audience like fools to buy anything sold to them are being inundated with it. So what did the Fox editor say in response? He said, I'm going to request a write-up on this. We're going to get it up on the website. I'm also, I think he said, the channel will most likely pick up uh, and air portions of it, meaning Philippe's email. Uh, we're going to quote this on TV. We're going to air this on the website. That's what the Fox staffer said. But that was days ago. And none of those comments from Philippe Rains have appeared on Fox. They haven't shown up on the website, as far as I can tell, either. So it's another example of how the Fox machine works. They obsessed over Hillary Clinton all week, talking about this being bigger than Watergate, uh, trying to cover every supposed angle. Then when the Clinton camp actually has something to say, when one of Clinton's former senior aides has something really interesting to say, they ignored it. In fact, uh, Fox dropped off its Clinton covers by the end of the week. Right around the time she attacked Fox in a speech and said the network was coming close to actual malice, a legal term that people usually use when they're thinking of suing someone. Adrian Elrod is familiar with this Fox machine firsthand. She's the former director of strategic communication for Hillary for America. She's a Democratic strategist who was a regular on Fox back in 2017. But it's been some time since she's appeared on the network, and she's here with me now. Adrian, why did you decide to stop appearing on Fox? Well, you know, Brian, first of all, thank you so much for having me on today. And I'm glad that you read Philippe's um, email in full because it really does paint the picture of what the Clinton campaign and Hillary Clinton as a person has been dealing with for a long time when it comes to Fox News. Um, but look, you know, I thought, you know, Brian, after Trump won in 2016, uh, that perhaps, you know, some of us who were senior aides on Hillary Clinton's campaign going on Fox News and trying to, you know, have a dialogue, ongoing dialogue with the viewers would make some sort of difference. And I soon learned very quickly that it just simply wasn't going to happen. Um, you know, I looked at the topics that I often got about four to five minutes before I would go on air. Um, and, and no other network was covering some of these topics because they weren't newsworthy, because they were conspiracy theory driven, very much related to what were the topic that we're talking about today. Um, and it became that much harder to go on and even have a, you know, quasi serious conversation because again, the topics that I was given were oftentimes about Hillary Clinton, who, of course, at that time had retreated into private life. And, and secondly, they were in complete diversion from all of Trump's problems as president. So I decided soon um, after, you know, maybe going on for about eight, nine months in 2017, this just simply wasn't working. And the network yeah. was not even trying to have their, quote unquote, fair and balanced coverage, which they still like to tout. So this is the tension that Democratic strategists feel. And in the case of Clinton, there's constant talk on Fox, I think fantastical, dreamy talk, that she's going to run for president again in 2024. Would, would you like to address that? What would you say to that? I think Hillary Clinton's made it very clear that she's not running for president in 2024. But look, Brian, you cover this constantly, and I'm so glad that you do. If, if Hillary Clinton, if there's even one tiny inkling that she might run for public office again, Fox News is going to grasp onto that and they're going to cover it. Why? Because she drives ratings. Driving ratings means driving advertising dollars, which means more revenue for the network. So the very thought that she or even her husband, Bill Clinton, won't be running for office again drives them absolutely crazy because they mm. need to try to find some narrative, some line of, of, of you know, of, of, of news reporting that they can use to try to keep their name in the news so they can drive advertising dollars into their network. And they talk about Hillary the spy while they ignore 
uh, Trump's classified document scandal. Adrian, thank you very much for being exactly. here. Let me bring the uh, panel Thanks, back. Morris Gavacampo here, Joe Perrin and David Zerowick. Joe, you were former president of Fox News. You left right as Roger Ailes came in and it became a cable network in the mid 1990s. But you've you observed Fox up close. Um, do you recognize the place that you we were at in the 90s when you were trying to- So they're attacking Fox. Well, let's not go to Fox. Let's watch some other stuff. Let's go to 2020. How's that? Right before the elections. Let's go to 2020. It's going to be Fox, though. Classified documents today revealing former, former CIA director John Brennan briefed then-President Obama on Hillary Clinton's purported plan to smear then-candidate Trump in 2016, adding to what the National Intelligence Director has already de declassified on this issue and raising more questions tonight about how much more of this will come out before Election Day. Senior political correspondent Mike Emanuel is following the story tonight in Washington. Good evening, Mike. Brett, good evening. These are handwritten notes from former CIA director John Brennan, written according to a source familiar after Brennan briefed President Obama. At one point, Brennan writes, quote, approved by Hillary Clinton, a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security service. The notes say on 28 of July, in the margin, Brennan writes POTUS, but that section of the notes are redacted. Then it says any evidence of collaboration between Trump campaign and Russia. The remainder of the notes are redacted, except in the margins where it says J.C., Dennis and Susan. That could be referring to former FBI Director James Comey, former Obama Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough and former National Security Advisor Susan Rice. The CIA sent a memo to former FBI Director James Comey and Peter Strzok writing, quote, the following information is provided for the exclusive use of your bureau for background investigative action or lead pur purposes as appropriate. One example, the CIA includes, quote, an exchange redacted discussing U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton's approval of a plan concerning U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump and Russian hackers hampering U.S. elections as a means of distracting the public from the, her use of a private email server. At a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee last week, Comey was pressed on what he did with information provided by the CIA. Did you open an investigation? I don't know what that refers to. As I said earlier, that does not ring any bells with me when I read that. You, you did not receive any investigative referral of this nature? I don't remember it. I don't, I don't remember receiving anything that's described in that letter. Hillary Clinton spokesman Nick Merrill has called the latest revelation, quote, baseless BS. So that was 2020. Let's go a little bit back in time. Let's go to where they were laughing about it. Let's go. Here we go. Let's go. And was President Obama's CIA director, director who, who you may have heard recently lost his security clearance, a true American patriot, John Brennan. <laughs> I don't usually say it's an honor to have somebody on my show, but it is an honor to meet you and have you here. And I know, and I want people to know, we had this booking a long time ago. This isn't just because of the events of recent weeks. You were scheduled to come here, and I thank you for honoring it. And, uh, you know, some people on the right have accused you of uh, 
wanting to monetize. That's their argument against you. You're not here to monetize anything, are you, John? Uh, no, uh, I am not. I didn't ask to keep my security clearances. Former directors don't do that. We keep those clearances because sometimes those in government sure. want to be able to avail themselves of our experiences, our expertise, our, our um, knowledge about certain issues. Uh, so people serve on commissions. Sometimes they serve on private sector boards, whatever. But this is the first time in 38 years that I haven't had a security clearance. And uh, the basis uh, for the revocation is, uh, is bogus. Um, Mr. Trump and his administration didn't adhere even to the process that they reaffirmed last year. And the politicization of security clearances, either the granting or the revocation, is a real threat to our national security, which is why so many people came out and opposed uh, his action. And so I certainly hope... So many that, people yeah. came out for you. He pulled my clearance within five minutes. Shut up, John. Uh, Admiral McRaven <laughs> said... He's, he said, please revoke my security clearance. It would be an honor, considering what you did to Brennan. Yeah, so everybody with a brain is on your side. Uh, it's interesting, Jared and Ivanka still have clearances. You, one of the guys who was the architect of getting bin Laden, does not. Well, it uh, seems as though... Architect of getting bin Laden? You mean where you parked him in Pakistan and then you pretended to... Fuck's sake. See... See, they say these things because, you know, they believe the things that they're saying. But, I, you know, it, it's stunning because I had not seen this interview before, but his lisp is more prominent. And he only has that when he's relaxed because he's so tense about the way he talks that his lisp is totally on point. Rand Paul was the one who put this idea yes. in Donald Trump's head. And Dead to me, Rand Paul. Uh, yeah, well, Rand Paul has never served on the Intelligence Committee. He knows not of which he speaks, uh, but yet he has this impression <laughs> that I'm monetizing security clearances. Uh, so he continues to spout out on these issues. But uh, again, I believe very strongly in the principle that national security is one of the most sacred and solemn professions uh, in, in this government. And every American citizen deserves to have national security professionals, intelligence professionals who are not going to be political, not going to be politicized, and no president ever should take that uh, uh, capability away from them. So, you know, I've been having a hell of a time here on this show trying to get my guest to say the word treason. I think the president is guilty of that. And you used terms like that. You said after Helsinki, it was nothing short of treasonous, which sounds to me like treasonous. Uh, and then I noticed this last week, some people tried to get you to take it back and you wouldn't. And again, I, I don't, I don't understand why people are so reluctant. I get it. It's a scary word. It's like, you know, don't break this glass case unless you need the, f but when it's time to break the glass case, don't not do it just because it's a glass case. It is treason. And they're the ones that have committed that treason. So let's go, let's, we'll come back to that. Let's go to, let's see, where are we going to? We're going to this. Brief, where we talk with the Washington Examiner's top journalists about, about the headlines. headlines they're covering this week and where the story's going next. I'm Sarah Westwood and I'm here today with commentary editor Con Carroll. And Con, you wrote this week an editorial about a big revelation from Special Prosecutor John Durham. 
It has to do with some new revelations about uh, spying that took place during the Trump campaign and, and even beyond. Tell us about what happened. Sure. So last Friday, uh, John Durham was a special counsel, uh, filed a motion uh, with the court asking them to uh, get a waiver from the defendant in this case, uh, a man named Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer who is accused of lying to the FBI. And basically, um, Durham was asking the court to get a waiver from him because his current defense counsel, Latham and Watkins, um, has also represented and is still representing the Democratic National Committee, another lawyer named Mark Elias, and a whole bunch of other defendants and firms that also um, are facing wrongdoing during this time. And there may be a conflict of interest between defending Sussman and defending all of these other groups, which, again, also have been accused of uh, doing wrongdoing in the 2016 election. Why is all this so significant now, you know, years after this this initial transgression took place? Sure. It's just there's a, a breadth of um, cooperation and conspiracy between all of these powerful institutions against the Trump campaign that we didn't realize. So there wasn't a lot of new news in um, Friday's filing. A lot of it we knew from September uh, earlier. And what we found out at the time was that a big tech CEO, who is senior vice president of a firm called Newstar. He used data, private data from his firm, and he actually coerced other tech firms to give them their data as well. Okay, and he took that data and he then went to Georgia Tech, which had a con contract with DARPA, and said, could you help me analyze this data to create a narrative against President, I'm sorry, then candidate Trump, um, that would be embarrassing him, embarrassing to him in office. Now then, Joffe then took that, data and that paper that they worked with and went to Michael Sussman, the lawyer in question. And then Sussman took that. And instead of going to the FBI, instead of going to the CIA, instead of going to law enforcement, he went to Hillary's campaign and their lawyers and said, how can we take this data and make this bad for President Trump? And then that's when they brought him. All right, we got to stop the bullshit for one second. Here's how it went. He tasked Joffe to find people that would be able to do it. Georgia Tech colluded with someone in the Pentagon. They got information that they can spin. And then Sussman took it to Hillary Clinton and said, how can we do this? Let's look what we got. Let's get someone on Papadopoulos. Let's get all this stuff. Let's connect the dots. And then I'll go to the FBI. That's the real steps taken. And the media and everyone else. And so right now they're trying to claim, oh, no, we were just trying to go to law enforcement because we were concerned citizens. But that's not what they went to. They went to the press. They went to the campaign all to create, in their own words, from, from emails that uh, Durham has shown, to create a narrative that was embarrassing to Trump. Do you think this is significant enough to support Trump's claims, which he made in office and which were dismissed and ridiculed at the time, that he was spied on as a candidate? Or do you think we're not there yet in terms of what Durham's found? Right. So I don't think you could say, you know, Hillary, Clinton, Hillary Clinton's campaign spied on Trump because it wasn't them that was spying. And they didn't pay. Them. No, it wasn't them. It was Obama's Pentagon. It was Barack Hussein Obama. Remember, Sussman worked for him, too. This man, Joffe, to spy. But they definitely were involved in the conspiracy. If, if you were charging them for the conspiracy of trying to do this, they definitely were involved. They knew what was going on, and they helped try to further the narrative to embarrassing Trump. But they didn't actively pay someone to do it or hack them themselves. But I, it definitely is worrying. If, I mean, if you uh, are a private citizen and, and you give your data to a big tech company, just like you do every time you're on Twitter or Facebook or anything else, Basically, you know, what you're saying is the those the the management, those firms can take that data and give it to the press and not have any consequences whatsoever. And finally, what has been the reaction from the media and the left to, to everything you just described that we learned from Durham's filings? They've 
tried to obfuscate and misdirect and uh, basically make up and say there's, there's, there's nothing going on. Um, uh, the main story that they've been trying to go with is, is what I mentioned earlier, which is that this guy was just a private city, totally apolitical actor. You know, this guy had no idea that Sussman was a Democratic lawyer who's worked for the DNC. He just saw this alarming data. And mind you, this is a government contractor cybersecurity escort. He found this alarming data. And instead of telling, you know, his superiors or people that ran the, the government contract or going directly to the FBI or CIA himself, he then went to a Democratic lawyer who then went to the press. It's just it just doesn't make sense. Well, Khan, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. You can get more writing from Khan and the rest of the commentary team. Right. Oh, my God. You must listen to them because they know best. Now, let's go to another clip. Let's go to the Epic Times. Let's go to the Epic Times. Let me see. Where is it? There it is. Epic Times will tell us some stuff. And I think this is from yesterday. Brennan briefed Obama on a supposed intelligence bombshell, information that the corporate media claimed was drawn from sourcing deep inside the Russian government. According to media reports describing the briefing, Putin had approved a campaign to defeat or at least damage Hillary Clinton and help elect her opponent, Donald Trump. The media used quotes from former intelligence officials, breathlessly describing Obama as deeply concerned noting that Obama wanted as much information as fast as possible. In truth, Brennan's briefing was the exact opposite from what the media has reported for the last five years. Would Let's forget the media for a second. So you saw that intro? Let's go to the next clip. I'm going to take you straight to the horse's mouth. It gets me very uncomfortable to watch this, only because I can see just how comfortable he is. We're going to go to this point. That's from your point of view that the that it was sort of taken over by that event. You know, you can never uh, predict the uh, what's going to happen when you release something like that. Uh, the news of the day uh, continues to unfold. Um, we want to make sure we got it out um, as as quickly as we could uh, after the deliberation took place, uh, and whether or not uh, people took it uh, seriously. By then, uh, all the the press, the media, uh, were covering the interference in the election. Uh, there was a debate back and forth uh, about whether or not it was needed or necessary to go out with a statement like that, or should it be harder hitting or less or whatever. There was a lot of back and forth about about the statement and about how strong the statement should be. Once we decided on the language of the statement, we want to make sure we were able to get it out uh, quickly. And so it was released. Uh, we knew that it was going to get pickup in the media, obviously. Uh, people were anticipating, I think, that the administration was going to be saying something publicly. But then when it was, it seemed to be overtaken in some respects by the, the video and the audio of Mr. Trump's um, comments, um, it, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say it was disappointing, but, uh, it is a fact of life. Uh, that's what happens in, certainly in Washington. Uh, you can never predict what other newsworthy stories are going to be coming out at a time when you release a statement. Uh, but, uh, I, I think by then, uh, we were all 
convinced that the American people were aware of this Russian uh, interference, uh, but we thought it was very, very important to get on the record uh, that uh, this was the certainly the considered judgment, in fact, unanimous judgment uh, about uh, those activities. It also felt to me, feels to me as I look back on it, like uh, the White House had pretty much decided by October 7th, look, we'll deal with this after the election. We'll, whatever, whatever we do, however forcefully we respond, that response will follow Hillary Clinton's election because almost everybody believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Well, in the run-up to the election, I think the president always felt as though if he needed to take more aggressive action against Russia, he could. Uh, and he saw that there was going to be opportunities uh, before to do something if necessary, but as well afterward. And um, it was, I think, uh, determined that we didn't want to get into an escalatory uh, cyber uh, battle with the Russians because uh, there were options that were considered as far as the things that we could do in the cyber realm. But there is a question. Remember, he gave this interview after he had already given Obama his, you know, brief about what he approved Hillary could do. About then what would the Russians have done to counter that? And if they were going to counter it, uh, how that could have further interfered in the election or undermined the credibility. Is that in the realm of what we were worried about, about the states and about uh, getting actually inside the, the process, the, uh, the, the technical, the, the vote gathering uh, process? Yeah, by, by October, middle of October, we were aware of what Russia was trying to do vis-a-vis -vis the, the state systems. And we knew that there were capabilities that the Russians could have exercised that would have raised even greater questions about the credibility and integrity of the election. And so what we didn't want to do was to take some type of action that would have uh, negligible or marginal impact on the Russians, but yet trick. Remember, he said this after, right? This is 2017 that he made these statements, even though he had provided Barack Hussein Obama notes in early 2016 about Hillary's plan. I hope you guys are paying attention. Paying attention to how these people, so credible and so awesome, lie. CIA directors, former presidents, candidates for office, judges, you name it, they're disgusting. Trigger some type of Russian counteraction, uh, which would have, I think, uh, been quite disruptive uh, of the electoral system. And I think raised questions uh, about uh, the validity of the outcome. And at this time, as everybody was watching the polls, I think everybody was pretty convinced that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to win uh, the election. I think the Russians were convinced of that. I think most political observers, as well as officials in Washington. And uh, when looking back on it now, and I think if, if people in Washington and, and the White House felt that there was a closer race, would they have done things differently? I don't know. That's something that I think uh, President Obama would have to, to answer. Uh, I do think that the president tried to do it in a manner that was going to be as 
unbiased um, and least disruptive as possible. And when I saw the options that were available, uh, even if he thought that uh, Mr. Trump was going to emerge the winner, I don't think the president would have opted for any of the uh, scenarios that would have involved a, a U.S. cyber response against Russia prior to the election. I just don't. Right. They weren't going to attack Russia because Russia didn't do anything. They planned it all. They planned it all. He gave him the notes. He lied and lied and lied. Now, obviously, when your CIA director comes to you and says, this is what she's planning on doing, someone's got to sign off. Well, hmm. Brennan actually briefed Obama on was information indicating that Hillary Clinton had approved a plan to tie Trump to Russian election interference as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Truth Over News with Jeff Carlson and Hans Manka. According to handwritten notes that were declassified in 2020, Brennan told Obama that the proposal to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security service came from one of Clinton's foreign policy advisors. That foreign policy advisor is rumored to be the current national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who at the time held the title of senior foreign policy advisor for the Clinton campaign. He was also... Um, well, he's also in Hunter Biden's laptop. The existence and execution of Clinton's plan was recently confirmed in court filings made by special counsel John Durham in his case against Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman. Sussman and others connected to the Clinton campaign had indeed carried out a plan to vilify Donald Trump by tying him to Russia. Although FBI Director James Comey is said to have attended the July 28th, 2016 briefing with Obama, Brennan formally sent the same information to the FBI's headquarters and to lead Trump investigator Peter Strzok in a top-secret CIA memo on September 7th, 2016. The day after Brennan briefed Obama on Clinton's alleged plans, Sussman met with Christopher Steele in the offices of his law firm, Perkins Coy. Now let's stop for a second. So they made it official in September. What else happened in September of 2016? In September of 2016, they got caught. See, the people at the NSA do not appreciate some people within the CIA. It is an ongoing war. <sighs> so on the 26th of September, J J Carlin got caught targeting President Trump and others and collecting data, data on President Trump and others, data, 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 data. And I'm pretty sure all of that monitoring was done at some place that I find so dear. Obviously, I wasn't in charge of any data collection. I was in the division of other languages. At some base, um, let me see if I have a picture here to show you. Um, here. So here is where a lot of people exist or don't exist. 
Now, I want you to understand that this was a carefully thought out plan. Back in the early 2000s, the battle between uh, the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency had become evident. With 9-11, things changed. Snowden is no fucking hero. He was a plant that was sent out to cause a division between both the agencies. I want to make that clear. I want to make it clear. If you look at Shadowgate, I tell you exactly what happened because of what Snowden did. So people watched everything. There were a lot of people watching everything. Now, I was aware of the um, mistrust because in projects that I worked and agencies were tasked to it, many individuals that worked for the National Security Agency would always frown upon the fact that there would be central intelligence agency assets that they would have to cooperate with. They would always specifically ask to be anonymous. They were actually terrified of them because they had the power of access of the NSA, but a free pass to do whatever the fuck they wanted. But the thing is, people within the National Security Agency are people that collect information, store information. They're actually quite good programmers too. And a lot of them have created some very nice compression algorithms. I can tell you that. So they watched the whole thing happen. So one admiral made it clear. And so there we are in front of Judge Collier on the 26th of September, 2016, lining up all the fuckers, Comey, Lynch, Brennan, Clapper. Why are you guys collecting data from very specific targets that are unnamed in this document? Oh, yeah, we kind of think that, um, 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 you know, um, maybe it's a human error, maybe it's a computer error. We don't know. It's just doing it. Judge knew something was up. Three weeks later, they come to the same fucking judge, who's a FISA judge, and say, we need FISA warrants on all these people. Here's the information we have. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that the information that I gave you 90 days to rectify that you were over-collecting on people? I don't know, maybe, but no. So the judge played dumb and granted the FISA warrants. See, that's how it is. So I just wanted to throw that in in September. Let's continue. Also in attendance at this meeting were officials from Fusion GPS and Perkins Coy partner Mark Elias. Steele, who would later tell a British court that Sussman told him at this meeting of allegations that Oh, yeah, that's right. Mark Elias, whose firm just made an appearance in my Dominion case. I just thought I'd throw that in. Trump was secretly communicating with the Kremlin via the Russian Alpha Bank, immediately prepared a new memo for his dossier, which falsely alleged an eight-year Russian effort to cultivate Trump. The timing of these events 
particularly Brennan's briefing to Obama, are significant because they came only days before the FBI officially opened its crossfire hurricane investigation into ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. That investigation was allegedly opened on July 31, 2016, after the Australian ambassador in London gave the U.S. Embassy a tip about Trump foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos. According to Downer, he and Papadopoulos had met in May 2016, when Papadopoulos supposedly made a suggestion of a suggestion that Russia might have derogatory information on Hillary Clinton that might help Trump. That rumor was already known at the time. In fact, Judge Andrew Napolitano had actually shared that rumor on Fox News even before Downer met with Papadopoulos. And at the same time, we learned there's a debate going on in the Kremlin between the foreign ministry and the intelligence services about whether or not they should release the 20,000 of Mrs. Clinton's emails that they have hacked into and received and stored. All of this is happening at once. Oh boy. Forbes magazine ran a similar story all the way back in February 2016. For Papadopoulos to have made a similar claim to Downer would not have been unexpected or noteworthy. The fact that it took Downer three months to even come forward with the information tends to confirm that Papadopoulos had said nothing that would have warranted the FBI's attention. Indeed, Downer confirmed in a 2019 interview on Australian TV that Papadopoulos said nothing out of the ordinary. Um, there was no suggestion from Papadopoulos, nor in the record of the, um, of the meeting that we sent back to Canberra, there was no suggestion um, that there was collusion between Donald Trump or Donald Trump's campaign and the Russians. All we did was report what Papadopoulos said, um, and that was that he thought uh, the Russians may um, release information, might release information that could be damaging to Hillary Clinton's campaign at some stage before the election. Although Downer may not have been aware that the same rumor was swirling around in American media circles, the FBI would certainly have been aware. And despite the flimsiness of Papadopoulos' statements, the FBI used Downer's info as a pretext to open a formal investigation into the Trump campaign. Making matters far worse, the FBI already knew at the time that Hillary Clinton had approved the plan to smear Trump with Russia collusion. Had the FBI chosen to actually follow the facts, Comey and the Crossfire Hurricane team would have focused their attention on investigating the Clinton campaign for fabricating Trump's alleged Russian ties. Instead, they targeted Trump. And with the opening of the FBI's investigation, the narrative regarding Russia collusion had now formally begun. Brennan followed up his briefing to Obama by suddenly issuing a warning to Russia's FSB head, Alexander Bortnikov, on August 4th, 2016, not to engage in US election interference. Following his formal warning to Russia, Brennan then set about spreading his narrative of Russian interference to Congress. Brennan has testified that he briefed the Congressional Gang of Eight over a period of several weeks. Brennan has also testified that during his congressional briefings, he specifically told each congressional member that Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, to denigrate Secretary Clinton and harm her electability and potential presidency. 
and to help President Trump's election chances. Notably, Brennan chose to give a separate briefing to congressional leader Harry Reid that apparently differed from his other congressional briefings because shortly after... Let's talk about Harry Reid. See, I talked about Harry Reid before anyone talked about Harry Reid. Harry Reid's a loser from Nevada. Well, he's dead now. But Harry Reid was in the middle of a lawsuit with TheraBand. You know, those stretchy bands? He was doing exercise and it hit him in the face and he tried to sue them because he's a loser. But I can tell you this, that at the end of October, I was dressed as a man and I was hanging out at the house as a guest of someone. And there they were waiting, McCain and Graham, knowing that Harry Reid was on his way or already there at Mother Jones handing over the PP dossier. And do you know where that PP, 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 did you know that Harry Reid <coughs> frequented brothels? And one of the things that he did love is golden showers. After meeting with Brennan, Reid sent a blistering letter to Comey on August 27, 2016. Reid's letter noted the Trump campaign's alleged ties to Russia and included an early reference to Trump advisor Carter Page. Reid demanded that these allegations be thoroughly and publicly investigated. Reid's letter to Comey was then followed up three days later with a letter from House Democrats asking him to investigate Trump-Russia collusion in the context of the DNC hacking. The Democrats' letter noted that serious questions have been raised about overt and... So there was no DNC hack. Uh, the transfer rate was that of an SD drive taking it. The only time that they saw a hack was when the DNC itself in May of 2016 was uploading the data into the cloud for the FBI as they were imaging their server. Eh, so liar, liar, pants on fire. Covert actions by Trump campaign officials on behalf of Russian interests. Of course, Brennan, Reid, and House Democrats were all fully aware that the corporate media would seize on these meritless claims and promote them relentlessly. After these accusations had been given the proper time to make their way into the public sphere, Hillary Clinton publicly accused Russia of interfering with the U.S. presidential election and implied that a victory by Trump would destabilize and weaken the United States. Clinton told reporters that it's almost unthinkable referring to what she called recent credible reports about Russian interference in our elections. Jake Sullivan would later issue his own statement, insinuating that Trump was colluding with Russia. At the time of Clinton's... Remember, Jake Sullivan is now in charge of our foreign policy. I just wanted to point that out. At least it's not Ben Rhodes who's crying, you know, on the side of the street because Hillary lost. You remember that? That, was, that shit was so funny. All we needed was to superimpose a red balloon while he was bitching and crying. Comments, Crossfire Hurricane was already well underway. Meanwhile, no investigation had been initiated into the Clinton campaign from either Brennan's briefing to Obama or his CIA memo. In fact, Brennan was taking specific actions to provide direct support for Clinton's claims of interference by the Russian government. It was at Brennan's urging that the intelligence community began their efforts to establish that Russia was interfering in our election. On October 7, 2016, the intelligence community issued a joint statement that claimed they were confident Russia had directed the recent compromises of emails.
including those from U.S. political organizations. Brennan's actions to firmly establish a narrative of Russian interference would become even more significant as Brennan was about to embark on his creation of the intelligence community assessment, an insurance policy that would be used in the unlikely event that Trump won, an insurance policy which alleged that Russian interference in our election allowed Donald Trump to win. Brennan's assessment. See, you know, he was thinking, holy crap, what if there's people that know how I'm going to do this because they've been trained to do it somewhere else, you know, maybe another state or another country, whatever. And so we got to get this done because, you know, we're going to get caught. What if Donald Trump has people in the right place? Would what, become if, the what if people stop me from being able to, I don't know, adjust the algorithms. We haven't set this shit in place because it's too quick. We need at least a couple of years to set up a theft. I mean, that's the plan. We've got less than, you know, nine months. We thought we would have knocked Donald Trump out by freaking December, 2015. We don't have enough time to rig the elections. What do we do? Let's pay Iran a lot of money. That way we can pay them a lot of money. Therefore, we can have our five and nine eyes work with us. We need all hands on deck. Let's make them happy. So then he sent a plane with cash. Cornerstone of the false allegation that Trump had colluded with Russia. Under Brennan's lead, the intelligence community began to craft a threadbare assessment alleging that Putin had orchestrated Trump's election. That assessment, which was officially commissioned by Obama after the 2016 election, but it certainly begun earlier, was completed by early January 2017. A two-page summary of the Steele dossier was attached to the final version of the intelligence community assessment. The sole purpose of the ICA was to hang the specter of Russia collusion around Trump's neck, and it was done so with a willing and complicit media. While the public version of the assessment contained no significant information of any kind and merely recycled media talking points about how Russian state TV channel RT had said negative things about Hillary Clinton, it was the attachment of the dossier that set off a cascade of events that ultimately culminated in the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. And Robert Mueller at some point was um, <laughs> working with Comey. I mean, obviously you're going to get your BFF when you did fuck ups last time to work with you, right? So weird. It's so bizarre. Lots to do with the distinguished House member from Ohio, Mr. Jim Jordan, who returns. I have not seen. I got to say, Happy New Year. I haven't seen you in so long. I, I think you're avoiding me, Mr. Good Jordan. Good to be with you, Larry. <laughs> not at all. Good to be but with you. It's wonderful to see you again. So, um, Jim, let me just start with, I mean, lots to ask you, but why do you suppose, just off the top of your head, Joe Biden is out there predicting what day were what day the yep. Russians are going to war with the Ukraine. I mean, on about five different levels, I don't understand that. No, I don't either. I thought your monologue was right on target. Uh, but remember, this is the same 
foreign policy team that gave us the debacle that was the exit from Afghanistan. And remember, these same individuals, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, Wendy Sherman, Bill Burns, those were the same people who were in charge back in the Obama administration Mm. when we had the tragedy in Benghazi. So it probably shouldn't surprise us. I mean, it's sad for our country. It's sad for the the world. But it shouldn't surprise us that they're messing this up as well. Uh, You're right. We need sanctions. They should have been on right away. But when you start from the wrong you know, when you when you start from the wrong uh, perspective, right, right from the get go, projecting weakness from the Oval Office and giving in on this Nord Stream pipeline to to Putin, I, I think from that point on, it's been all downhill. That's why you, you can't start and, and, and project weakness like this administration seems to do every single day. Yeah, I mean, you get back to years ago, what we used to call the U.S. as a paper tiger. I mean, I think that stuff started under the Carter administration. And of course, the similarities between Biden and Carter are um, <laughs> regrettably quite uh, and re- numerous. And it revolves around energy, as you rightly put energy. You take the right energy policy because energy is the key to the economy. It's a key to the, it's why inflation is so high because it runs through our entire economy. So, yeah, when you start from the wrong perspective on, on and, and the wrong uh, starting point on energy, you get these, these uh, problems. And, of course, we didn't have this under President Trump because President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo projected strength from the Oval Office, from the White House all the time. Yes, they did. Um, So uh, Hillary Clinton is in town giving a speech actually just around the corner, I'm told. I have a tweet uh, from her will interest you regarding the latest revelations uh, from uh, John Durham. The quote is Trump and Fox are desperately spinning up a fake scandal to distract from his real one. So it's a day that ends in something, in day that ends in something. The more, the more his misdeeds are exposed, the more they lie. Okay, so she's saying yeah. we're just, we're just uh, it's a corner phrase, trumping this up. But on the other hand, the Durham, I want to get your take on the Durham story. She's saying yeah. we're just. Let me read it out. She said, Trump and Fox are desperately spinning up a fake scandal to distract from his real ones. So it's a day that ends in why. The more his misdeeds are exposed, the more they lie. For those interested in reality, here's a good debunking of their latest nonsense. If you need to, listen to that again. Now let's skip forward to what he has to say. Durham story, because... You know, the Durham thing, I think, shows with great clarity, Trump really was spied on. You know, people said he was crazy when he talked about that. You know, at the Trump Tower, Jim, at at his uh, one of his apartment buildings on the west side where he did not live. But then even worse, you know, is this uh, this uh, Internet guy got into the um, uh, executive uh, office of the president into the White House which is very serious yeah. businesses. I mean, you're talking felonies and treason and Lord knows what. Uh, what do you make of this? And I want to add the player, Jake Sullivan, right? The national security yeah. advisor who was putting out this crap. And now he's negotiating with the Russians, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I think the first takeaway is we were right about this all along. President Trump was right when he said in 2017 he was being spied on. Bill Barr said it in 2019. He said spying took place and there was a basis for his concern about the spying. So and each time that those statements were made, the press and the Democrats, oh, no, no, that's not true. Well, we knew it was true. And now, of course, Durham has more than confirmed that. And he's pointed out the fact that it goes right to the Clinton campaign. What I find interesting is this tech executive one, this Joffe guy, mm. Because there was a piece in the New York Times that, oh, no, he was doing what he was supposed to do. He was on contract. If he saw something that was of concern to him, he was supposed to raise that concern. Well, let's just assume for a second that's all true. Why did he raise that concern with the lawyer from the Clinton campaign, Mr. Zussman, and also communicated it to Mr. Elias, the lawyer, the chief counsel for the Clinton campaign? If he was concerned about it and there was a real issue there, he should have went to the FBI. But he didn't do that, Larry. He went to the campaign and then Mr. Zussman takes this information to the FBI. And again, not just anyone at the FBI. Who does he meet with? He meets with Jim Baker, the chief counsel. So that's what's unusual about this and why I find it so troubling, not to mention the language Durham used later, where he said that we were looking to create an inference and a narrative. You know what we call that? We call that framing someone. They were trying to frame the president of the United States. And it, and it goes right to the Clinton campaign as evidenced by the filing from Mr. Durham last Friday. Now, while many people find that fantastical, I want you guys to remember, uh, you know, how they treated President Trump aside from the Russia thing. And I want to get a little bit vulnerable, like a little bit vulnerable. So I'm thinking of something and I wanted to ask my audience to tell me what they think. There's a website that I'm putting together. And so I want to show and read a little bit of it. And I want your input. Lawfare, warfare. Even from the news reports, you can all see that Attorney General Stengem alleged death was an ulcer, heart attack, or suicide. The answer is suicide. Before a grand jury released an indictment, he took his life. What is lawfare? Lawfare is a term that can have a double meaning, but in both cases relates to it using legal systems and institutions to achieve a goal. The misuse of legal systems and principles against an enemy, such as damaging or delegitimizing them, wasting their time and money, or winning a public relations victory. You saw the same tactics used on President Trump. Lawfare. It's a real thing. And it is how they silence those that disrupt business as usual and threaten to take their power. I want you guys to think about that. If anyone Googles my name, all you see are hit pieces. Here's a real story. And if you actually read my case, you'll see it too. Between 2015 and 2017, I had exposed a government-run network of drug running, cartel covers, child trafficking, and crimes against children. In 2017, I was bold enough to communicate with the justice officials within the Trump administration to expose a legislature-mediated fraud of over $180 million, among other things. Legislature passed a bill to give the city of Minot a $180 million loan for flood protection because the U.S. Army Corps engineers had not finished surveying the area. Almost seven years, Katrina took nine months so that the city of Minot qualified for FEMA funds. 
The reason this was done, the State Bank of North Dakota was short $180 million on their books, and they needed to cover it, or they would go bankrupt. Within days of sending my thorough report to the Trump administration, the U.S. Army Corps engineers announced their end of a survey and named me as the source on November 30th, 2017. This was a conspiracy by multiple state agencies to burden their residents with a loan to cover the deficit they had. On December 1st, 2017, the Attorney General's Office of North Dakota called me and made claims of born no water. I asked to see a complaint. They refused. Instead, they used secret subpoenas, Dukas Tecum, to look into every aspect of my life, even my bank accounts, even before they went to court. And I was never notified, of course, because they're secret subpoenas. They tell the people that they send them to, don't tell her we're sending it to you. All that with no complaint or reason for these unconstitutional searches. That's illegal. When they found no crimes, they filed a civil suit. In the suit, they filed untrue things. Manufactured statement, fake web pages, fake information, violated my HIPAA, and even described criminal inferences that I was a victim of as a way to paint me as a fraud. My identity had been used by someone else. They knew that. They had wiretapped my home and surveilled all aspects of my life. They knew I was a victim and used the crimes against me to reinforce their abuse of office. In fact, I discovered the perpetrator of those crimes in late 2019. All of that was determined in criminal courts in 2020, where the perpetrator was sentenced to 45 years. Law enforcement stood by and watched my children and I be victims of crimes and did nothing. The attorney general issued administrative subpoenas to find me guilty of a crime and found none. Instead, his office observed crimes happening within my home against my children and myself and said nothing. I stood before the first judge in the spring of 2018. He did not honor my rights. He told me that I was not entitled to any complaint or justification for this investigation. He even considered the attorney general's request to disallow me to use the internet. The judge said, I must comply. I refused. I stood my ground. I was found in contempt. April 2018, I sent Attorney General Sessions a barrage of evidence of the human trafficking network. My witness, Danny Fuller of Devil's Lake, had provided me over 18 months. Attorney General Sessions turned up to North Dakota within days. I filed a defamation suit, and all the judges recused themselves, leaving my case dead in the water. A police officer in July, in July of 2018 executed my witness. Once the announcement of his death and exoneration of the police officer who executed him with one shot behind the head while unarmed, the attorney general filed his second suit. Remember, I was found in contempt by the first judge for not complying with unconstitutional orders. I refused. I stood my ground. At this point, the state of North Dakota had determined that I was the whistleblower they had been looking for.
My investigations led to the arrest and conviction of Deputy U.S. Marshal of North Dakota for crimes against children. The U.S. Marshal of North Dakota resigned in the middle of the night on December 31st, 2016. The Wells County Sheriff was charged and convicted of drug trafficking. There are many officials convicted from drug trafficking, human trafficking, to office favors, overpayment of foster kids, and abuse of office. There are more perpetrators in the state of North Dakota that have yet to be tried with the results of my investigation. Attorney General Stengem was close with many key players in the Obama administration. He was invited to John McCain's funeral. In August of 2018, the Attorney General filed thousands of pages in a new case against me requesting sanctions for not obeying their demand to hand over my devices, emails, and phone records. They even used my expenditures to shame me, a whopping $300 and some change that they obtained from my bank account without notifying me. At that point, it came clean that they had been surveilling me and sending out secret subpoenas. I asked the judge to have them take me to criminal court. They refused. I asked to see a complaint that was never provided. At this point, I had no money. They had obliterated me. I was at the mercy of pro bono work and myself. At this point, they had literally bankrupted me. I was at the mercy of anyone and justice being blind. The Attorney General of North Dakota filed thousands of pages in his second case filing in August of 2018. I was not allowed to depose the Attorney General, only he was allowed. I was forced to respond to a string of interrogatories. I could not send interrogatories to the Attorney General. This is legally unsound and highly improper, if not illegal. During those highly improper and invasive interrogatories, I realized their plan. I had to reveal that I worked under the purview of former CIA Director John Owen Brennan. I had to unmask myself. They were trying to entrap me by violating OPSEC. I did not. I contested the filings. I pleaded with the judge to show me why they began the investigation. I never did any fundraising. I never had to register as a charity. I never got donations. The Attorney General admitted to all of that in his filings. The attorney general even admitted that he had no legal reason or complaint to initiate the investigation in his file, admitted that I didn't receive donations, yet another judge sided with him again. The judge even awarded him fees for the time he spent investigating me. I was found guilty of nothing except that I did not comply with unconstitutional orders. That judge had a loan for a lake house that the attorney general's bank had issued. That may have been his motivation. I stood my grounds. My rights were violated. I was offered a $500 fine to admit it, and it would all go away. And I said, no, I do not bend the knee. I still refused to comply. I didn't even entertain the idea. I ignored all his requests. He knew he could ask for jail time. That would mean the criminal court would be involved and he would be in trouble. The attorney general was forced to file with the Supreme Court of North Dakota demanding sanctions and enforcement of the order by the lower courts to pay his fees, which were around 25000 for investigating me without a complaint or justified reason. The Supreme Court refused to award him his fees. The Supreme Court of North Dakota in 2021 acknowledged that the lower court's rulings were wrong, but I still should have complied because it was a court order. You see, they all cover for each other. It's a perversion of justice. 
The swamp washes each other's hands, but there's more. In December of 2019, my world crumbled. My children and I had been victims of unspeakable crimes. In the early hours of that Friday, an attempt on my life occurred with a missing firearm. It was brushed off as prowlers. Later that evening, I called the police upon being revealed something horrific. My children and I complied with law enforcement. While the police were interviewing us in our home about this crime, two service processors appeared, one after another, on the same day while the police were in my house to serve me subpoenas. One is the Seth Rich case, and one was something about Julian Assange. All that happened within 24 hours. The perpetrator was head of household. I had no access to our bank accounts and only $2 in my pocket. That Monday, I spoke with the prosecutor. I pleaded to her to conceal my children's identity as one was in middle school and would be harassed. She told me we were named Jane Doe 1 through 3, respectively. That evening, gray media released our identities. My child's classmates confronted my daughter at school with an unredacted confession in hand. How did that happen? We were being harassed for being victims, including the minor. Violation of Marcy's law. This has never happened in North Dakota history. Who's in charge of law enforcement? The attorney general. The same attorney general who surveilled my home and life for two years, observed these crimes and did nothing. Harassed online as being harassed in person. I reached out to the domestic violence center. They were fall. Rain Foundation, fall. Legal aid told us they had a conflict of, age, of, of interest and no agency would help us. There I am with $2 and running out of food in the cupboard and no assistance. That happened. I'm still here. I did not comply and I will hold them all accountable. I'm not sharing this with you for sympathy. I'm telling you the real story of who I am because I fear absolutely nothing. I have no criminal record. I serve my country in uniform and ununiformed. These are legally unrefuted facts. I went up against a whole state, a corrupt state. I went up against the fourth unelected branch of government and I came out of that fearless. I never complied. I stood my ground and I will never bend the knee. Everything they sent to destroy me made me stronger. So I wanted to point that out because I know, um, you know, I'm, I'm entering a venture where people, you know, take me down for things because they listen to half-baked losers that talk and talk and talk. And so that's the real story. And you know, there's two cases that you can actually pull. You can pull the Supreme Court, actually read it. Because that was the sequence of the events. That is what happened. Now, again, I don't say it for sympathy, right? I say it for all the losers out there trying me. Because once I get over this defamation case against Media Matters, Dominion. <laughs> and then some. I will have a war chest with a lot of hundreds of millions and I will destroy every single one of we. I don't give a fuck if you don't have a pot to piss in. I will still go and get a judgment for you.
See, the thing is, is that no matter how many times you tell people you don't read, they don't listen. That was the sequence of events. That's factual. That's the truth. And if you read the case, you'll see it yourself. Because what people keep saying, because I see this shit all the time and it drives me insane. She has a long criminal record. I don't have a criminal history. Stupid. Well, actually, you know, I had a criminal charge against me in the state of Oregon because uh, I threw burning materials out of a car. That means cigarette. Kid you not, it's considered a misdemeanor in the state, and I had to pay for it $1,500 to plead that shit down to a violation, okay? Okay? So still no criminal record, okay? That was a cigarette out the fucking window, okay? Okay? Cigarette out the window. While it was fucking raining, too. Let's be straight. So, you know, when people come to me, that are losers and want to make a name for themselves and they talk about me, I obviously see that they haven't read anything about me, that they have no idea what I'm about. Absolutely zero idea. So I'm going to tell you this. I, I'm going to make that public because I have to in a little small section because people keep asking those questions because anytime you Google my name, that's there. And for me, it's a paycheck. You guys, it's a fucking paycheck. So I don't care for all those articles. Waypo put out there for all those articles. Every motherfucker did. I get to take that money back from the state of North Dakota because they did it to me. They did that shit to me. And that state's got a big fat ass fund. Remember, they just charged the citizens $180 million. And they got a shit ton of money from China, too. I'm going to take every penny that I'm worth. And then I'm going to have them ask those agencies to retract those statements. I don't have to do it. They'll do it. Because it's continuously causing damage to my character. So when people think that, oh, she just like, oh, this, that, that. Right? They have no idea what I've been through. And the thing is, it's because when you're someone like me that had a career of lying to their loved ones, of lying to the people around them because I couldn't tell them what they, what I did, right? I would make a lot of concessions to red flags that I would see, assuming it's because my story doesn't add up. You know, I can't lie to the people that, that I love so easily Uh, you know, and I tried and I tried really hard. Um, so, you know, I made a lot of concessions. I allowed, you know, uh, people to talk to me in a certain way. I would explain like, you know, yeah, you know, they just don't know, you know, I'd rather just waffle about, um, you know, and just not turn up or ghost or say, oh, you know, I'm really sorry and make up some fucking lame excuse as to why I couldn't be somewhere. And this is to the people closest to me. So I would, I would have, I allowed that to happen because I couldn't talk about what I did. And I made those concessions. And, 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 and that was my blind spot because, you know, I thought that, oh, you know, whatever red flag or the way someone talks, you know, you know, brings it to me, right? Uh, 
the heat, if something doesn't seem right, I say it's because of me, right? Because if you know, it's like, you know, that guy, you know, the guy with like 20 chicks, he's like, you know, yeah, you know, nobody better than you, baby. And then, you know, he's got underwear in the back of his pocket and he's like, oh, it's not some chicks. I was a Victoria's Secrets and while you were sleeping, I was going to lay it on you and see what size it is. You know, it's not some other woman's underwear, you know, the, the liar that comes up with something, you know, and I lied to myself thinking, oh, you know, he's, the response that I'm getting is because I lied and it doesn't make sense and it's my fault. So I just wanted to, to put that out for anyone ever saying anything because what can I say? Read thousands and thousands of pages. The fact that my witness was murdered, you should call his mom and see what she has to say. You should call his dad and see what he has to say. See, people don't do that. You have losers that are trying to beg you for money because things are broken or they need this. I haven't asked you for anything. And that's another thing that pisses people off. A lot of people get pissed off. She's grifting. She wanted, I didn't even know you guys were buying me a car for my birthday. And you know what pisses them off is that they have to ask. I didn't. And that's what pisses them off. That's the problem. They call it grifting, but the thing is they have to beg. I didn't ask. Why? Because I am genuine with my listeners. I don't see him as a cash register. My cash register is God. He brings everything I need. And when I had those $2 in my pocket, I kid you not, he made sure that I had what I needed to go where I needed to do whatever I needed. And that was it. And that's the thing. And they can't fucking stand it. That's because they're not genuine. That's the difference between someone being genuine and someone not being genuine. So I wanted to put that out there for anyone that needed to hear it, right? For anyone that needed to hear it, but also to get your opinion. Is that too much to put on a website? I think it's a nice read, right? It was really hard to write, I have to tell you, but I just want to see the comments. Is it okay? Was it too much? I mean, some people are like, don't put it out there if you don't have to. And it's like, but it's all over if you Google my name. They even misspell my name on purpose so that people can go and Google that shit. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll have it all the way at the bottom. People should know. <laughs> but I am not afraid of anything. I am not afraid of anything. And anyone trying to use the fact that I was a victim while I was trying to help victims. I was also a victim and trying to use it against me. And the fact that I was lawfare to the fucking ground and I had no one there to, to help me. You know what? That's wrong. I had about five or six people that would allow me to use their ear. They didn't have much, but there was a guy named Michael Coachman, a guy named Paul, a guy named Michael, another guy named Paul, Chris, they were my rock during this time because they understood the politics of their state. And I was trying to figure out how they were getting away with it. I couldn't believe that I went through a court like that. And the fact that they're able to slander me in, in the way they have was just ridiculous. I mean, think about it, guys. You get stopped and you get frisked. It's because there's a reason. They looked into every portion of my life. And this is why when I see what they do to President Trump, I'm by no means, you know, the same as President Trump, but on a smaller scale, they did the same exact shit to me. The same exact shit. 
but he had lawyers, so he won, right? I didn't. I did not. And that's the way it is. And again, if me, little old me, right, survived, I'm still standing and I did not have to bend the knee. I did not have to bend the knee. And I will never. I remember telling my friend who, I miss her so much. And I know that she's sick now too. Um, She said, just sign it. You don't want these people all over you. Just sign it. It's just 500 bucks and it all goes away. No, I was not going to have on on any record admit that I failed to register. I did some bullshit that gives them the excuse to then come after me. There was no fucking way. I said, I will burn alive. I will prefer to be locked up and thrown away with a key rather than admit to something that is not true. And I stand by our rights and my rights were completely violated. Violated beyond belief. I fear nothing. So I wanted to share that um, and and get your opinion on it. And, you know, there's probably thousands of people across America going through something like this. Obviously, they're not me. They're not you. They're not, you know, whatever. But there's people going through their own portion of it. And, um, I think February was, has been a very difficult month for me health wise and more, uh, preparation wise, because people are indeed very, very evil. I mean, I'm not even fussed about Bergie. Okay, guys, he's, he's a loser. He's gone. He, he's begging for like $10 now. He's like, it's so over. I'm so over it. Right. But it's like more people that are jumping on and they say things. And every single time I see one that really pisses me off, I gather all the information, I store it because I'm like, I'm going to come for them when they don't expect it. There's no statute of limitations. And I will follow them and I will have eyes on them so they can repeat it. So that resets every single time. And I will come for them so fucking hard. Because, you know, when they call themselves journalists and that they do thorough investigations and that they read and they don't and they just say things, well, then they should be held accountable for it. And maybe if one, two, three mega trolls go down, kind of like Brian Cates, because I'm coming for that fucking dildo head, definitely coming for him, definitely going for him. Because he made those statements. He called me stolen valor. How the fuck did I steal valor when I served? Makes me sick. So I just wanted to say it was a time of contemplating and sitting and, um, you know, kind of just collecting myself while there was chaos because my health just totally fell apart this month. It was completely unexpected. And please do not think I'm talking about Bergie. He's like the gum on my shoe. He, the only thing he does is stalk me and talk about me. He's going to get tired of it soon. So everybody can tell him, I say he needs to go get help. Okay. Nobody cares about him. He's done. He's dusted. He's totally discredited himself. I'm talking about others. And so, and for those that will come in the future, because, you know, I had one, uh, oh, was it the Toledo blade or fucking Dayton press? that clearly claimed, oh, damn, I forgot to put it in my Supreme Court filing. Shit. 
how they said that the secretary of state was investigating to see what name I needed to use because <laughs> my legal ID and the way I'm registered to vote isn't right enough. So anyway, um, I'll leave it at that. The fuck around and find out applies to everyone. And if anything, my story is, is easy and is, and is and as flowy as I could tell it from start to finish should tell you that if it happens to me, it's going to happen to you. Just like President Trump said, they're doing this to me. Imagine what they could do to you. Imagine what they could do to you. And this is all documented. It's all registered. It's not bullshit. It's in the record. All of it. So... On that note, I'm going to wish you guys a fantastic evening, and I'm going to, again, play this video, which I believe is quite important for you to pay attention to the words, and obviously the video itself with the words. See you tomorrow. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Can't touch this. Sweet dreams are made of the year. Who am I?